0: Hey, friends, just quickly, my new book, The Proof is in the Plants, is now available. Get it from plantproof.com forward slash book. Thanks so much for all your ongoing support, and I hope you enjoy this episode.
1: When Western European capitalists came to North America, they saw natives from the outset as heathens, and it gave them complete moral permission in their minds to separate natives from wealth by any means necessary. Most kids in the U.S. don't even know that Native Americans still exist. I mean, basically, we're taught in schools here, Native Americans were allies or the saviors of the very first English that came to what's now Massachusetts then the majority were wiped out due to pandemic the idea that there was a conscious and continuing war a genocide against them is definitely not taught in schools here schools here
0: that's sanjay rawal and this is the plant proof podcast Hey friends, welcome back. I hope that you've been doing well, kicking goals, having fun, all that stuff. If this is by chance your first time joining us, welcome. Hopefully you enjoy the episode and this becomes the first of many times that we get to hang out. I'm Simon Hill, your show host, nutritionist, physiotherapist, and author. So what is the plant-proof podcast all about? What am I trying to achieve here? Well, each week I invite guests from across the world, dietitians, gastroenterologists, neurologists, nutrition scientists, and other folks doing interesting things to help all of us, myself included, make better choices in our day to day and ultimately live a healthier and more fulfilled life. That really does get to the heart of the show and my mission. No catches, no dogma, no fine print, high quality, agenda-free information that in a world of misinformation and disinformation helps us separate fact from fiction and grow more confident in the way we are navigating our lives. Before I introduce today's guest, I have one small, very small request for all who have read my book. If you enjoyed it, derived some value from it, I would love you to go to goodreads.com. That's goodreads.com. Search the proof is in the plants and leave a written review. It really does help with getting the book into more people's hands And remember, all proceeds I receive are donated to the non-for-profit half-cut organization to help protect the Daintree Rainforest from deforestation. Thank you for all who have already left a review. And thanks in advance for those who decide to leave a review after hearing this. I appreciate you. I love your curiosity and interest in nutrition science, and really do value your support. Okay, so with that little preamble out of the way, let's get into it, shall we? This week's episode is centered around the importance of giving First Nations people a seat at the table so they can be heard, particularly when it comes to managing land, improving our food systems, and creating a more equitable world for all to enjoy. Last year, I had the privilege of watching a documentary called Gather, which documents the growing movement among Native Americans to reclaim their spiritual, political, and cultural identities through food sovereignty. The film was directed by Sanjay Rawal and produced by Tanya Melia. Long story short, But Sanjay is an Indian American documentary film director who lives in New York City. He previously directed Food Chains and 3100 Run and Become and is a James Beard award-winning filmmaker. A few weeks back, I was in New York City. We connected and had this conversation, a conversation that I found insightful, thought-provoking, and really just another important reminder about inclusion, connection, humility, and respect to ourselves, to our fellow humans, and to all of nature. So with that said, this is Sanjay Rawal. Please do enjoy, and I'll catch you on the other side. Sanjay, thank you so much for doing this.
1: Oh, man, I'm a big fan of your podcast. It's an honor. It's great to have you in New York City.
0: Yeah, I'm glad that we could do it here. It's a beautiful sunny day here in New York City.
1: Best time of year to be here. Really? Yeah.
0: Cool. Well, I am a big fan of your work, and uh, it's it's great to do this in person, not, not remote. Um, I watched Gather last year, it came out, right? Yes. And... I really, really enjoyed it. I I was drawn to it and moved by it. I loved your perspective and I think you have uh, a, a really great story and, and set of experiences to share. So I'm really looking forward to, to digging into this. Perhaps we start with if someone has not heard of Gather, let's say you are at a coffee shop and you get introduced to a friend of a friend and they say, Sanjay, uh, I heard you directed a a film, Gather. How would you describe it in in a couple minutes?
1: In a nutshell, it's about Native American food sovereignty. Those are a bunch of words that seem very, very confusing. But our food system 300, 400 years ago was completely different from what it is now. In India, where my parents are from, there were no hot peppers 300 years ago. There were no potatoes. There were no tomatoes in Italy until the 1700s. Most of the world's food system came from what is now North America. That food system at the same time was almost completely erased by European colonizers. So our film Gather looks at the remnants of that food system in indigenous communities all across the United States and how that's a source of spiritual strength and resiliency for those communities and how essentially it holds the key to the survival of humanity.
0: There's a lot to unpack there. I want to start with you as a person. I know that you were originally in science, right? And and I'm wondering, can you share your sort of path into this space of thinking and talking about human rights and thinking about sovereignty and thinking about First Nations people?
1: I'm I'm really grateful to be where I am now. I was just an ordinary student, immigrant parents in the United States. And like a lot of kids, you know, all of us really, at some point in your life, you begin wondering what you're meant to do. Now, most people don't really have any way to figure that out. And it might take decades. I came across an East Indian spiritual teacher named Sri Chinmoy, who was based in New York, and I was all the way out West in California. And immediately felt that the secret to my happiness was studying with him. So both my parents, being from India, had PhDs and came to the U.S., basically got out of villages due to education. And here was their Americanized young kid wanting to end his education and go study with an Indian spiritual teacher. My parents are great. Their relatives gave them a lot of crap for that. But I essentially left California right after finishing my college degree and pledged to spend the rest of my life at the feet of a teacher who, curiously enough, had moved from India to New York City. So I came to New York City essentially to look for peace.
0: What was it about this teacher? What what was it that he was sharing with you that, that made you want
1: to sort of lean into this more? Well, a lot of the books I'd read and the ones that moved me the most were really about teachers 100 years ago, 150 years ago, where life was completely different And their students were able to essentially go on pilgrimages to the Himalayas or to ashrams or to monasteries and basically pledge the rest of their life to silent contemplation. I didn't think that was going to be possible. I mean, I thought about it. I fantasized about like leaving everything behind. But either I had too much fear to do that or it really wasn't my path. Sri Chinmoy's path is really focused on accepting life and the reality that God is everywhere, the divine is in everything. And you don't have to escape the divine to find the divine with the right heartfelt focus. You can find that love, that peace, that sense of oneness in the world. And that felt right to me.
0: And so where did the interest in agriculture and food and and would you say the system is broken? Like where where did you sort of arrive? at this point where you decided you wanted to start exploring the food system?
1: At least in the Western world, we we develop a pretty healthy sense of ego. And as much as we try to imagine that we're not products of our parents and that we're our own people, it's in our 20s and 30s that we begin to realize how similar we are to our, our people that raised us. And my dad was in agriculture. And I had begun to do a lot of human rights work overseas, particularly in agricultural communities. Thinking I was forging my own path, and my dad sent me a book in 2011 about a group of tomato pickers in Southern Florida. It's a it's a long name: the Coalition of Immokalee Workers, the CIW. They had begun to advocate for their rights within the food system, and it was terrible. I mean, there was. Modern day slavery, like literally people being locked up at nighttime in crates and containers made to work in the daytime. What year is this? This is 2011. And what kind of people are these? These were mainly migrant workers from south of the border, from Mexico, Guatemala, um, Latin America. But the reality in the food system has, in the modern era, has always been that labor was essentially what made the whole system work. And I saw this firsthand. You know, in the richest country in the world, the people who were key to our food system lived horrible lives. But at the same time, this group, the CIW, had realized the solution was to go to the consumer and radically change what we call the supply chain. There's a lot in there, but what I realized was how distant I was from my food, which is a simple thing to say, but that my food choices shouldn't be based around labels like organic or you know sustainable and those types of philosophical ideas that my food choices needed to be based around the idea of people and that's kind of directed my filmmaking focus
0: so food chains that was your first film right that's correct so break this down for me if if the labor is cheap and i'm assuming that's still happening today in parts of the world to address that and to fix that, what does that do to the price of food? How do you see this kind of working in a way where people are paid fairly for for their work and also in a world where food is expensive and a lot of people can already not afford healthy food, um, how will we ensure good food access at the same time?
1: So let's take a giant step back to kind of outline the roots of this, the food system that really began in what's now the United States and now has been exported all over the world. The early European explorers that traveled to the Western Hemisphere were like venture capitalists. You know, Columbus was hired by the Portuguese, but he was Italian. John Cabot was hired by the English, but he was Italian. They were essentially mercenaries, pirates in a sense, with massive fleets, massive armadas at their disposal, sent out with the backing of lots of investors, to find wealth. Now, the Dutch and the English knew, or they knew that they could find that wealth in food. So they went to Indonesia for spices. They went to the New World to start cash economies based on cash crops, including timber. The Spanish and the Portuguese had their eyes set on gold and silver. But in all of those economies, there's one thing in common. They were trying to extract value from earth. Either the topsoil, like the British in terms of tobacco and cotton, or like the Spanish, underneath the ground. And moving ground takes two things. It takes access to that land. Indigenous communities were on that land. So a big part of that push was to separate Indigenous communities from their homes. Secondly, in the case of farming, it took labor. Indigenous communities were the first sources of forced labor, but, you know, they died or escaped. And so the West African slave trade started in earnest. So there's two sides of the coin. We need land. We need cheap labor. That's how most of the westernized countries, including Mexico in the Western Hemisphere, really arose. arose. That's how the global agriculture industry arose. From what used to be small peasant farms have now become gigantic farms. What used to be small tiny markets are now supermarkets. And that's what drives the entire industry. You need access to cheap land. You need access to cheap labor. Can you go a little bit further into,
0: you said that the Native Americans either died or were killed. Am I right? When you say they they died, we're talking about pandemic, infectious diseases. Can you kind of step through some of that history for people who are unaware of it?
1: Sure. I mean, this history is mirrored in indigenous communities all over the world. In Australia, with the Maori, in New Zealand, indigenous communities all up and down the Western Hemisphere. Initially, European explorers came to essentially turn native people into slaves. And the first massive die-offs, like in what is now the Dominican Republic in Haiti, led by Christopher Columbus, Those first die-offs weren't related to any pandemics. It was due to overwork. Hundreds of thousands of Native Americans, Native Caribbean folks, died in the mining of gold. Now, there was literally no gold on Hispaniola. And what little was found took a lot of labor. And you're essentially trying to make people work 18, 19, 20 hours a day, completely disposable. So that was the first wave of die-offs. When the British began coming to what's now the United States in the early 1600s, they didn't encounter wilderness. They didn't encounter this kind of utopian idea of of unbounded nature. Native Americans had carefully cultivated the entire eastern seaboard of the United States into very productive farmland using techniques that we now call regenerative, we now call sustainable but it was a relationship they had with Mother Earth that allowed them to have a long-term vision of how to use land. And so the British came and they killed natives for those plots of land, the highly productive land. And they established massive farms to essentially grow cotton and tobacco to export back to Europe.
0: So the term genocide gets used, would you say that's an accurate descriptor of of the events?
1: Yeah, and that, that genocide continues to this day in the United States. Got
0: a bit of a race, race car rally out there.
1: Fast and Furious happening (laughs) right outside the window.
0: (laughs) Soho, New York. There we go.
1: The majority of indigenous communities in Australia, in in what's now the the United States, were moved away from highly productive farmland uh, or, or land that was very valuable for capitalism. And that in the United States continues to this day. Indigenous communities were pushed as far away from urban centers, as far away from farmable land as possible. They live in areas that are at the very end of these supply chains. So it takes a lot of effort for trucks to deliver food to them. At the same time, because they're at the end of these supply chains, the food is at a very high price. So the government essentially sends a lot of really low-quality, free food to Indigenous communities.
0: And I want to get into where their health is currently at before we do that. so you you mentioned that the Native Americans were really in touch with nature and had been farming the land for hundreds thousands of years, right? How long had Native Americans been on the land before settlers came?
1: About twenty years ago, it was estimated by Western scientists that the majority, if not the entirety of populations in the Western Hemisphere crossed a land bridge over Alaska. But every five or 10 years, anthropologists find settlements that completely blow that theory out of the water. Recently, there were settlements and tools as old as 130,000 years found in California. And so it's really hard to say how and when populations arose in the Western Hemisphere.
0: But it's a long time. We're not talking hundreds of years. We're talking thousands and thousands of years. How were they, correct me if I'm wrong, I might be making uh, incorrect assumptions throughout this. I imagine there was hundreds of different tribes. So were they sort of working together or were they all working very distinctly, very separately?
1: So for those who've been to the United States before, it's really big. And there is a lot of different landscapes. Native communities only really needed to pick landscapes that had a lot of food potential. And there's before settlers came to the United States, there was food everywhere. I mean, 100 million beavers were killed for pelts to to make hats for Europeans. 100 million. I mean, it, then those numbers, you know, are uh, apply to tons of different species of animals. So America was like a paradise for nature. And so thousands of different communities that weren't nomadic arose based on language systems, but they didn't need to travel far because food was that abundant.
0: Gosh, that's incredible. When you knock out that number of a certain species, to think about the effect that that then has on the food chain and the ecosystem at large is mind-blowing.
1: I mean, this is the root of the idea of extractive capitalism, where God has put so many of a certain creature on this earth or a plant on this earth that we can use as much as we can possibly think of and essentially make as much money off of abundance as we possibly can. We realize now that nothing is infinite and a lot of the decisions and that capitalist trajectory set forth... 500, 600 years ago is leading to a stage where we realize resources aren't endless and we've got to make a lot of decisions to think a lot more about the future than about short-term gains.
0: Can we separate a few terms here for my education? What's the difference between saying First Nations and Native
1: American or Inuit, for example? It's all really just, just semantics. I mean, Inuit corresponds to a specific set of peoples up in Alaska and Northern Canada, some communities like being called Indigenous, uh, some like being called First Nations. We generally use those terms interchangeably. Technically, there's no such thing as a Native American. They all, all the different groups identify as their grouping, like Apache, Navajo, Hopi. But as a kind of umbrella, you know, people are okay with being called Indigenous or Native Americans.
0: One dead buffalo is two dead Indians. I've read that. I've heard that in various places. I think I might have even heard you say that. Can you talk to that? Is that something that was used by settlers?
1: Yeah. So the United States, as people know, came out of the British colonies. And the British colonies were basically set forth to make the UK money. But after American independence, there was still a huge economy here that depended on Europe. And that was agriculture-based. We shipped a lot of cotton, tobacco back to Europe. At the same time, there were a lot of people still moving to the the United States. This is pre-industrial revolution. The only economy is based on the land. The only economy is based on farming. I mean, there isn't even any petroleum exploration. So as your population increases, you need more land. Before the 1850s, the U.S. government basically forcibly removed Native Americans from the eastern seaboard to the center of the United States, to west of the Mississippi. But around the 1850s and 1860s, American farmers were clamoring for that land. And the tribes that were there were very, very powerful. They were great warriors and they were nomads. They followed herds of millions upon millions of buffalo. Now, the entire North American ecosystem evolved around one animal's movements for the most part. And that was the bison, that was the American buffalo. They moved all across the United States, all the way from Alaska down to Florida. Um, They were essential for the pollination of of plants. They were essential for uh, sequestering carbon. They were essential for a lot of the nomadic movement of insects and birds and, and other animals. And around the 1850s, in order to displace the Dakota Central Plain Native population and to not lose any more American soldiers in these vicious battles, the U.S. basically came up with a policy of destroying Native communities by killing buffalo. And so they basically supported hunts that took a population of 60 to 100 million buffalo down to less than 500 by the early 1900s. And now you see the, the, the tremendous instability environmentally. That central part of the United States was the third largest carbon sink in the world behind the Arctic tundra and behind the Brazilian rainforest. And now it's just massive corn farms. And, and from, from, from all of the exploration you've done on nutrition, you know, it's like the basis of the entire nutritional imbalance in the world comes from that corn commodity.
0: Have you seen When Wolves Change Rivers? Have you seen that? No. It's a short film. It's it's an incredible insight into what happens if you remove large numbers of one species from the food chain. And they looked at, uh, I can't recall the exact location in America, but they looked at reintroducing the wolves and the impact that this had on biodiversity was incredible. And it wasn't so much just that the wolves were introduced and then were preying on deer, for example. It was that they were actually changing the way that deer were moving. And through this, it completely changed the sides of the river Instead of being sort of overgrazed, they became more solid. There was less erosion and the river ended up completely completely transforming. But it's a it's a powerful example of the way that nature works in balance, in harmony.
1: Yeah, that's a great example. You're absolutely right. There was something that kind of happened in America in the 1850s that still has ramifications all over the world. A couple of the early pioneers or fathers of the environmental movement, Joseph LeConte, John Muir, basically invented this theory that nature was pure in the absence of mankind, in the absence of humanity. Whereas since the evolution of human beings, we have played an integral part in shaping our environments. We've been a part of those environments. And North America was probably the prime example of that. We see massive wildfires now in California and on the West Coast due to forests having been clear-cut, smaller saplings coming in, and literally no forest management. It's come to light that natives in those areas of the United States, for tens of thousands of years, meticulously managed those forests, which resulted in clean, healthy forest systems. And they meticulously burned forests in prescribed manners to the effect that every 15, 20 years, an area the entire size of California was was burned, you know, uh, consciously and intentionally. And it's only come to light now that most of the the America that Europeans came to enjoy and came to exploit was because of Native Americans and their constant presence and their, the idea that they felt they were stewards of these environments.
0: So they were overlooking the enormous amount of management that had gone into to maintaining and curating
1: that environment. And I think it has you know ramifications on the food system. When kids go to parks, we're taught not to take anything. We're taught not to touch anything. Whereas that's an important part of human interaction. It's like to be a part of nature and to understand how important it is for the environment, to, for us to have certain types of interactions. Just like when you remove a wolf from uh, an area, when you remove human interaction that was vital to that area, things out of the ordinary start happening.
0: What do you think about the way that Native Americans live off the land or were living off the land then before settlers arrived? What do you think about that way of living and scaling that up to, to sort of 8 to 10 billion people by you know, 2050? Is that something that you give much thought to?
1: It's, it's a great point. And I, I, I would even suggest we abandon the word scaling. You know, and I know that there's a, there's a lot of different meanings to that. But the idea is to understand our relationship with the land that we're living on right now. Most Native communities understood that their descendants were going to be living in their homeland. Now it's like we're such nomadic people. Like my parents come from India. I grew up in California. If something happens in New York, I'll, I'll move away. But Native populations have a responsibility of being stewards to the land that they're on. It's a multi-generational commitment to the land they feel they've been put in charge of. And that requires an entire reframing. So it's more of not, it's it's not so much how should we eat as human beings, but how should I eat as a New Yorker? How should I eat as somebody who's based on an island off of New York, we call it Long Island, I'm in Queens, you know, what sort of local food systems need to be built so that We don't have to be shipping blueberries from New Zealand in the winter. What sort of education do we need to have so that we eat things that are appropriate for season and things that are grown within 50 or 60 miles? It's like that type of localized food system creates the most type of connection between humans and food systems. If I'm getting all my food from California, 5,000 kilometers away from New York City, I really don't have any sense of what's going on with those food systems. And if my supermarket keeps giving me the foods I want, I stop caring about where they're coming from entirely. But if all my food has to come from a certain area, I'll understand the abundance that we have and the absence that we have.
0: Is there a a difference between buffalo and bison? Buffalo and bison are used interchangeably,
1: right? You know, Native Americans use the word buffalo uh, for bison. Uh, Technically, you know, the bison is the more scientifically accurate term but they they say buffalo.
0: Is there a difference between a buffalo and a cow in
1: terms of environmental impact? That's a great question. You've obviously been doing your research. So, you know, this, this has to do with evolution. So bison buffalo had evolved to the North American climates for hundreds of thousands of years. Now, cows were introduced by the British as a way to basically recreate the European farming system Cows have been as detrimental to the American topography as climate change has been. I mean, cows basically eat grasses down to below the roots. So a lot of the West where cows were grazed by the Spanish and the English, uh, mainly by the Spanish, actually. um, The entire grasslands that used to cover Arizona and California, the Sierra Nevadas, have been decimated, never to return. Bison didn't do that. Bison ate grass only to a stage where that grass would regrow. In winters, for example, bison have this evolutionary knowledge when there's huge, massive snowstorms, like there are in the Midwest, to all face the snowstorms. They've got these massive heads, and they, they, they basically develop these beautiful beards. Cows turn the opposite direction from the snowstorm. So about 12 years ago in South Dakota, where one of our characters is based, a, a bison farmer and, and his daughter... Hundreds of thousands of cows died one winter where the temperatures dropped to minus 40 Celsius, hundreds of thousands, and none of the bison population died. You know, the bison were not, are not only resilient to the climate, but we're finding now that they actually have a tremendous amount of benefits to the climate. So if you use the word sustainable, you're always fighting to have a sustainable dairy or meat industry fighting, and you're never going to get there because cows weren't meant to be in this part of the world
0: so how do you feel about the I guess modern day regenerative agriculture kind of brand which involves cows and involves the use of many principles that to my knowledge seem to to go right back to Native American or indigenous practices from all over the world is that something that you think about
1: I, I do so I, I think that the, the... First thing to kind of focus on in framing this part of the discussion is what we want to get out of the food system. Calories never used to cost money. I mean, yeah, calories were taxed, like wheat was taxed, things like that. But like tomatoes, potatoes, pineapples, if communities grew that food, it wasn't necessarily to sell thousands of miles away at a much higher value than the community placed on them. And communities themselves would be involved with that entire food system. And so this idea of like regenerative agriculture originally came from the idea of communities coming together and ensuring their sovereignty over their food system that no matter what else happened in the world, however big or small their world was, they always had a supply of food, which meant drying fish, which meant, you know, drying berries, which meant Growing the right types of things for your climate, just in case you couldn't trade or get stuff from another part. Now, the regenerative agriculture world, there are definitely some amazing people there. For the most part, it costs a lot of money to kind of like study these courses. At the same time, it's like, it's not really a system that's created to give away free food. Everybody still has to own land, pay bills. And therefore, there's this very kind of similar capitalistic extractive culture to it. At the same time, regenerative agriculture is just beginning to take note of the fact that most of the, quote, leaders in that space are not people of color. They're not indigenous or, in the case of the United States, African-Americans who have been practicing this type of small-scale farming for hundreds, if not thousands of years. So right now, the regenerative movement is in a very similar place as the environmental movement was in the 1850s, where it's being led by academics. It's being led by people who have generational wealth and can own land and can be part of policy decisions that really suit their socioeconomic class. But there's an opportunity right now for regenerative agriculture in the U.S. to begin including the voices whose knowledge the entire field relies on.
0: So when you think about the overall food system at the moment. It sounds like you're more in favor of, of decentralizing it. Would that be accurate?
1: I think there's no way to look at it and no way to recreate a connection between humans and their food system than for human beings to understand that they live in their food system. And so that means taking a lot of public land, converting it into farms, a lot of neighborhood land, converting it into farmland and making people grow their own food. And in the case of meat production you know, for those who, who, who still want that, for them to really understand what it's like to harvest your own meat. At least in that way, you know, meat consumption will go down drastically.
0: My only, I guess, concern with some of that is, I mean, there are a lot of environmental scientists talking about the need to reforest and uh, rewild lots of land and actually produce food on less land. What do you think about that?
1: Well, I don't think these are mutually exclusive ideas. Right now, the problem is that we value land based on its productivity. And so when it comes to forest land, we value it in terms of its timber productivity. When it comes to farmland, we value it based on the amount of dollars it creates per acre or per hectare. So if you've got farmland in the United States... You have to use it. You literally have to, to be able to get the tax credits that that farmers get. We also look at forests as something that we shouldn't touch. You know, at the same time, you know, forests are things that are not invaluable. Like we need to be in there and we need to be burning. We need to be cutting timber sustainably in order to create the gigantic trees, which sustain fireproof farms. But it's all to say that we need completely new land policy that's not based on a single decade, a single fiscal year, a single quarter's worth of production, we need to understand that these are things that need to exist for the rest of time. And we have to figure out ways to sustain our population and to create a, a, an actual future for human beings.
0: Do you think we can get there from, from where we are right now and, and where governments are around the world and I guess the, the current mindset and the gap between that mindset and more of the uh, indigenous mindset and being guardians of the land you know I I think about countries now who are sending ships around the world and you know clearing out the oceans with huge trawling and I just think about how hard and how difficult this will be it really requires a global concerted effort and agreement
1: I agree but I I also say that like ten years ago the greater population wasn't even thinking about these issues the way they are now it's like yes we were thinking about changing our light bulbs but we weren't necessarily thinking about overfishing we weren't thinking about changing food habits to like support a more plant-based diet system so you can only imagine where we want to be five or ten years from now I, I think that progress is great I don't think we can we can you know really count on anything but trying to make that incremental progress.
0: Have you had any discussions uh, with Native Americans about documentaries like Kiss the Ground? And when they see that perspective, I'm curious as to how do they feel?
1: Movies like Kiss the Ground have been infuriating for people of color. You know, that movie, and there's lots of excuses that that various groups give to, as to why that movie was majority Caucasian. Not to say that that's a bad thing in general, but you're in a space that was literally created by Native Americans and by African Americans in terms of regenerative farming in the United States. And it's not just the movie that is ignorant of the reality. It's that entire space of of companies like Kiss the Ground selling courses, people pushing this regenerative policy that literally excludes people of color. So, Native Americans, you know, look at those types of movements and really, I would say the the folks that that I speak to in, in in the native farming realm, they see those those movements as temporary that they're going to ultimately be failures because they don't represent the truth.
0: What would be the the main differences in mindset between say that regenerative agriculture mindset and that of uh, a First Nations person who is, you know, connected with the land.
1: So th- th- this is hypocritical of me to say because I- I'm I'm in the food system, like I live in New York City. But w- if we want to envision the future of food, number one, it has to include treating people well. That has to be a huge part of it. You can't be an ass and feel like you're you know, an exemplary, you know, human being. And a lot of farming doesn't take into account the way people have always been treated. You know, it doesn't include, you know, labor stipulation. Regenerative farming doesn't say that you've got to pay your workers a living wage. And without that type of fundamental basis, everything is just window dressing. I mean, number two, it's understanding how food systems need to be separated from capitalism. I, and this was Food Chains, my first movie, that looked at the massive size of American supermarkets. Walmart in the United States alone does about $300 billion in gross revenue in groceries alone. I mean, that's 10 times the amount of revenue that a big bank like Goldman Sachs does. You know, that's about the equivalent of what a large energy company does per year when we look at oil companies we look at banks as being detrimental to society but we don't look at these grocery stores as being major reasons why the food system doesn't change
0: i think about that and 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 i think about this from a consumer point of view right it sounds like we need transparency we need to understand when we're picking up that food off the shelf What is the impact on humans who are involved in the production? What is the impact on the environment? And that seems like a a governance issue.
1: I I agree. So one simple example, again, is, is Walmart. And there's Walmarts or gigantic box stores everywhere. So I guarantee you that there's like an analogy in every single country a listener might be tuning in from. Walmart, again, sells about $300 billion of groceries every year, and it pays very little corporate tax. The United States has a, um, a, an assistance program called Food Stamps, and it's given to people that are, are suffering economically. About $60 billion of American food stamps goes to Walmart. So 20% of Walmart's grocery store revenue is coming from subsidized food stamps. So those of us who might not be on food stamps but are shopping at Walmart are essentially paying twice. You know, we're paying for, our taxes are going to basically double our own net contribution to Walmart. And that money is not going back into communities. It's going into the pockets of the richest Americans, the richest people in the world. The Walton family is worth hundreds of billions of dollars. And so these food systems are not that different now than they were 500 years ago, where rich families would send ships across the United States. It might've been royal families to extract wealth, to make those royal families richer. The same thing is happening now. It's like we don't really have a sense of where the money is going. And a question that you asked at the very, very beginning of this episode, when it comes to creating fair wages for workers in the field, we did a back of the envelope calculation. The average farm worker makes about you know, $10 to $12 an hour, which is barely enough for making ends meet, it's not a living wage at all. For farm worker wages to be doubled, the average American family of four would have to spend an extra $60 per year. $60 per year to double the wages. Just over a dollar a week. Yeah, so that movie, Food Chains, was based around tomato workers. Tomato workers essentially earn one penny for every pound that they pick. And this group of workers, the CIW, advocated for big buyers of tomatoes, these grocery stores, to pay an extra penny per pound to double the wages of those farm workers. Those of us who buy tomatoes know that we could be paying 99 cents or $1.39 per pound. We would not notice if an extra penny went. Right now, those extra pennies are all going to supermarkets. They're all growing to the Walton family, to the rich shareholders of a lot of these public and private companies. To redistribute that wealth to labor requires pennies on the dollar. And that's the case of the food system. We're spending tons of money at fast food and restaurants. There have been studies that have shown that you know the restaurants in the United States, the fast food restaurants that are paying living wages, $15, $20 an hour, might have burger prices that are one or two cents more on average than their competitors. That's it. It doesn't cost much to be good people, but the people that are preventing this from happening are few and very powerful.
0: That's obviously an ongoing conversation. Do you see that changing anytime soon? I
1: I don't see it changing anytime soon because most westernized countries have never seen food as a human right. In fact, a lot of the wealth of Europe, a lot of the wealth in the United States, again, came from treating land and labor in the food system as disposable. And so right now, it's like in the capitalist regime, in the free market system, we don't have a guarantee to fresh food. We don't have a guarantee to affordable food. And I don't see that changing because, again, these food companies, whether you're looking at Bayer or Monsanto or looking at grocery store companies are some of the largest, most powerfully politically connected companies in the world.
0: Hey friends, I hope you're enjoying this episode. It's Simon here. Just a quick intermission to remind you that my book, The Proof is in the Plants, is now available. In this book, I cover common myths about plant-based diets, evidence showing the potential health benefits that are up for grabs, the positive impact eating plant foods has on the planet, and much more. To order your copy, head to plantproof.com forward slash book. Plantproof.com forward slash book. Okay, let's get back into it. So if you are a consumer and you're thinking, well, I want to I want to vote with my dollar for a better world where people are paid correctly, how do you navigate this? Is this avoiding those big companies, or is that is that actually making the problem even worse?
1: So there's 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 two things. It's it's using our power as consumers, but also as citizens. Like, yes, there's short-term change and there's long-term change. Long-term is using our power as citizens and really seeding these conversations and picking people to represent us that actually care about these issues. For the short-term, you can go shop in really small locally owned markets and you think that the prices are higher and your receipts will be, you know, 15, 20, 25% higher But again, when you look at the overall cost, the cost of shopping from these large companies and subsidizing not only, you know, like food stamps being used at these companies, but the fact that a lot of the people working at these companies are actually on government assistance as well. We're paying for all that anyways. Would you rather have money given to people in your community or would you rather have that money funneled to people who already have tens of billions of dollars?
0: So buy local, buy from within your community where you can.
1: Yeah. So like, you know, putting my own money where my mouth is, I live in a small, pretty much immigrant community in, I say small, but it's, it's I'm in Queens, a New York City that has about 3 million people, but my little neighborhood is pretty condensed. Queens is the most diverse place, they say, on the entire planet. There's more than 171 different distinct languages spoken there. There's a little health food store around the corner for me. Now, there used to be health food stores and natural food stores all over New York City. But Amazon has obviously become gigantic in the last decade. They bought a major American grocery chain called Whole Foods. A very powerful European, German set of brothers who own a company called Aldi bought a kind of a hippie-ish American chain called Trader Joe's. And so now in New York City, if you want good quality food, you only have these massive Whole Foods and these massive Trader Joe's and they put all the little guys out of business. But we have a little community health food store called Guru Health Foods which is committed to the health and well-being of our small little neighborhood, a lot of herbs, a lot of vitamins, and I volunteer there 15 hours a week because like that's my contribution to my local food system. That's my sense of community of being a part of other people's food decisions and wanting to have this access.
0: I love that. What do you think about the packaging of food somehow illustrating, displaying the environmental impact of that food.
1: There are so many beautiful labels out there, and they're all so confusing. I actually went to a conference about labels and how confusing they were. There's natural, there's sustainable, there's free range. I have no idea. All I want to know at the end of the day is that some of my money is going to good people who are based in my community. So I'm looking for things that are made within 100 miles of, of where I live, if possible. I'm you know, constantly paying attention to like labor violations with farming companies like Driscoll's, with small producers of bread in Queens and Brooklyn, and trying to stay away from those companies. I've come to understand, at least in my own decisions, that healthy people means a healthy environment. You know, when people are happy and healthy, the environment is happy and healthy.
0: I get worried about some of those labels as well and where what's greenwashing, what's real. It's all greenwashing.
1: Unless the food is free, you know, there's something not natural about it.
0: And uh, there's a a guy called Spencer Roberts. He's an ecologist. He recently just published something on regenerative agriculture in this country, actually. Regeneration International is a big website. And he went to... Uh, one of their kind of live Zoom meetings and asked a whole bunch of questions just around, you know, what goes into assessing the farms, which is a pretty good question, right? You know, we want to know if someone is, is saying regenerative agriculture, well, how regenerative is it? What's the effect on biodiversity? What is the carbon sequestration? Is this being assessed? And they refused to answer him. His wife, uh, this is an interesting story, his wife's grandfather had come over from Netherlands and had a dairy farm in America a long time ago, not currently registered, but they still had the land. And so he actually set up a fake dairy farm and applied through this company and was given regenerative agriculture approval and put on their map, on their website, and literally he did not have to do anything except for fill out a one-pager there was no assessment of his farm. It didn't exist. Uh, and he was up there for over a year.
1: That, that's the state of, that, that's what happens when you mix. And again, I'm, I'm in this world, but when you mix capitalism to an unnatural degree with food, people start making money off of giving you a label. They start making money off of membership. They start making money off of speaking fees. And it's not reflective of the future we want to live in. I mean, that's the difficult thing. It's like there are different terms that everybody uses. There's food security, the idea that everybody has access to calories. They might be bad calories. There's food sovereignty, which means that you have access to the type of food that ensures a healthy community and cultural and spiritual progress for yourself. For some people, that might mean you know a certain type of vegetable that your people have worshipped for thousands of years. For other people, that might mean consciousness. It might mean a plant-based diet. That said, these conversations are not happening at the level of policy because policy is controlled by finance and finance makes a lot of money off of food, whether it's a regenerative organization or whether it's a massive organization like Walmart, we always have to look at where the money is going.
0: But surely with the degradation, continual degradation of the environment, that becomes a financial matter eventually where you know, the economy will suffer from complete and utter you know, degradation of the land that is no longer productive.
1: I, I agree. At the same time, it's like, you know, we know that the worst actors in this space are the big actors. You know, as consumers, we're taught to like cut our emissions by choosing different clothing or choosing a different lifestyle. Whereas at least in the U.S., agriculture uses 70% of the water. You know, the meat industry, as you know, you know, contributes a a massive amount of greenhouse gases. And that's not from the cow or the pig you grow in your backyard or the chicken that you take the eggs from. That's from the fact that this stuff is being shipped dozens of times, hundreds of miles, if not thousands of miles across different ecosystems. And land is cheap for farmers. Land is subsidized in the U.S. for farmers. Taxes are subsidized. When we begin to change the way our dollars are spent, you know, we begin to change the way we look at land. Everything needs to be smaller, more local. And at the same time, the more connection that people have with that process, the more they understand how all of this is affecting us hour by hour.
0: The only one thing that I would push back slightly on and this is, you know, something we could have an ongoing conversation about. Is I had uh, Hannah Ritchie on my show. She's a, a geoscientist, and she was looking at the greenhouse gas emissions of food. And across the board, transport actually only makes up about ten percent. So what is on your plate does matter much more than where it's come from. Although I agree, you know, supporting local absolutely. But I think the number of cows. Does need to reduce.
1: I mean, I'm a vegetarian. I mean, I've been a vegetarian since I was 17 years old. And in my country, India, we think of cows as holy. We don't. We don't want to eat cows. So yeah, it's like that. The way you farm, whether it's animal or whether it's a specific crop, can be done in uh, with the, with the idea of a long term window or a short term window. You can look at the land that you're farming as something you want to be able to farm in a hundred years or like the food economy, you don't really care if the land becomes fallow in five years because there's always going to be more land. So yes, it's like, for me, it boils down to treating that land as perfectly and with as much humility as you possibly can. And that comes from a consumer standpoint from knowing where that land is and not having it be something that's just hypothetical. It's like knowing what your relationship is with your food means being at least a small part of the food system
0: i want to talk about that a little more about you know understanding the land being connected with the land given your understanding of native american people what's the risk of losing the the wisdom and knowledge that has been you know shared through generation and generation of native americans over hundreds of years
1: I think there's, there's four things. Like number one, actually, actually 70% of the global diversity in plant-based foods has come from the Western hemisphere. So there's a tremendous amount of genetic potential that still exists. Much of it has been destroyed. Much of it has been commodified. Much of it has been bought and studied and, and turned into things that wasn't. Like the, the Monsanto pesticide resistant corn came from a Mohawk white corn. And so much of Western food relied on that genetics. And the diversity out there is really being protected by, the majority of the diversity is being protected by indigenous seed keepers or seed keepers with an indigenous mindset. Number two, you know, the philosophy of farming and land use is completely different. It's like, again, natives don't wanna leave their ancestral land. And so they want their ancestral land to be just as viable 10,000 years from now as it is right now. Like the rest of my lineage is not going to be living in the same spot as my great grandparents. We're so nomadic and we've lost connection with the land upon which our entire family history is based. Number three, the food systems and native communities are communal. Everybody owns the land or everybody uses the land together. People might farm specific parts of the land, but when it's harvest, Everybody helps. There's feasts, so all the food is pooled together. And this kind of comes to the fourth and most important thing. We don't worship land the way we try to worship our own version of the divine. You know, it's like we think of the the divine as something deep within. We don't necessarily see the manifestation of the divine, not just in other human beings, but in the land itself. and therefore, we don't treat the land the way, with the humility that we do with whatever aspect of the divine we worship, either in silent meditation or at a church or at a synagogue. But the idea of Mother Earth being treated with utmost humility is absent from our Western mindset, and it's not within communities that rely on that land. If you rely on land, if you understand that you rely on land for your survival, you realize that you're in a realm of compassion and that nature being your form of sustenance and allowing you to thrive is an act of compassion from the universe.
0: And being nature as opposed to being separate from it.
1: Exactly. We are nature. We can be conscious of it. You know, we can, everybody on earth, I guess, unless you're like in an airplane right now, you know, your feet are on mother earth. There's, there's mother earth under the concrete too you're breathing in Father Sky, you know, you're asking them for their prayers and you're showing them that you're willing to work for those prayers. If you have that sense of where your feet are, where your head and heart are, you know, there's an understanding about our place in the universe.
0: Tell me about Native American people today and the tribes that that still exist in in America. How are they from a physical, uh, mental health and in, in terms of Reparation? Have they been granted rights and, and ownership of land across the country?
1: That's a great question. There's a couple of different layers. Number one, you know, since most of the kind of modern capitalist economy was created in North America, a lot of the tactics that have been used overseas, from land grabs to environmental degradation, happened here. At the same time, Native Americans still exist here. So they know how to resist these forces of ignorance. Number two, you know, they have been pushed as far away as possible from traditional lands, or they've had their, their land practices severely curtailed, or they're living in places that are exceptionally polluted. I should say there's there's a resilience in Indian country, which is, is prized and which is, which is worshipped. And they're beginning to understand how to push back against the effects of American capitalism. They're beginning to understand how many of their health issues and diabetes is through the roof. Suicidality is through the roof. Alcoholism is through the roof. And that's something they've realized is by design. And so they've realized they've had to, they have to reclaim their relationship with land. They have to push away the easy sources of food. They have to recreate the knowledge that existed hundreds, if not thousands of years ago and make that the norm rather than the exception.
0: And is the is the system here supportive of that?
1: Absolutely not. I mean, the system here is still dependent on land, and Native Americans, even though their land mass has been reduced from the entire you know United States to like a couple hundred small reservations, you know, the irony of it all is like those reservations were pretty poor farmable land. But the more rocky your land is, the more chance you have of there being petroleum resources, other mineral resources. And so in Indian country, there's still the, the awareness that they have a lot of resources that America wants to have itself. I mean, one of the biggest battles in modern Native American politics was in a reservation called Standing Rock. And there was a pipeline that was going to be built across Standing Rock uh, because the major city of that state didn't want the pipeline anywhere near it. So that, that pipeline was essentially built, and there were lots of oil spills since then. It's kind of been shut down now.
0: And that's an important part of the country for Native Americans.
1: Yeah, they see that the, the limited land they live on is still kind of just seen as disposable, and they're seen as disposable. It's sad, but at the same time, there's been a concerted effort for the last 500 years to get rid of all the indigenous people, and they've managed to resist and that's the kind of like strength of their determination and of their approach and it shows to the, it shows the strength of their inherent knowledge and wisdom I think
0: so they're they're still very much in a fight right now
1: yeah it's going to be it's going to be a fight until the rest of society begins to value their participation in california for example that's beginning to change because like we mentioned there's been a lot of wildfires and native groups for for decades have been saying like, we never had these sorts of uncontrollable fires because we managed the forest in this way, this way, and this way. And now those members of those tribes from those areas are being brought into the conversation saying like, how did your ancestors prevent wild uncontrollable forest fires?
0: Mm, There's something in that that seems ironic or a bit rich that it's now about valuing what they can do to help descendants of settlers as opposed to just valuing them as people.
1: It's it's tremendously ironic. But at the same time, natives look at their responsibility to Mother Earth and to the land. And if they can contribute in any small form, it's better than not being able to contribute at all.
0: You could not blame them for taking a position of, hang on, you know, you haven't helped us for hundreds of years. We're not going to all of a sudden just step in and help you. So it's it's a very, uh, it shows a lot of humility. It,
1: it does at the same time, like there, there are certain instances where they do have that attitude. There's a tribe called the Hopi tribe in Arizona that have produced some of the best runners that the Western hemisphere has ever seen. They live on a mesa at a, about 3,500 foot elevation. They have some types, some varieties of corn that don't need any rainwater. You can dry farm them, a little bit of rain here and there, but they don't require irrigation. They're not nearly as intensive as as other forms of corn. Academic researchers have taken that corn for, had had traded for that corn for decades. And the Hopi found out that they developed those into commercial corn varieties. And they'd seen that corn as their mother. They'd seen, they worship that corn. And so one of the common things amongst Hopis is that you know, imagining they're on this mesa looking down at people. They said, "When the world burns, they will be knocking on our door for our valuables, for our riches, for our wisdom, and we won't give it to them."
0: That's an interesting thing in and of itself, seeds, right? Because you know, in the world today, with uh, intellectual property, there is patents and ownership of of uh, certain innovations, and it could be argued that you know those seed banks that Native Americans had, you know, been using and harvesting for many thousands of years are their intellectual property.
1: It, I mean, it, it goes with the, with, the, with the majority of like Western medicine. A lot of these sources came from plants. A lot of the research was on plants. And you see Western companies trying to patent those chemical compounds, even the, even some spices that have been used for tens of thousands of years, much less germplasm, like in seeds, it's the idea that food and medicine are not a human right; that there should be a price, you know, for those that you know. It really depends on how much certain populations are willing to pay. It's backwards.
0: Do you ever think about the the mindset today of descendants of settlers? And you know, I'm a descendant of a settler, no doubt, in Australia, right? Um, I'm sure my my heritage goes back to. English or Europeans in some way but I'm wondering do you think that descendants of settlers today feel that they're not responsible for what their ancestors you know did the actions that they took and in some ways just failing to understand that even though they're not directly responsible they still are beneficiaries of of what took place,
1: I, I love that topic, and I'm going to basically paraphrase one of the characters and gather a young man named Sammy Jensaw from the Yurok tribe on a what used to be pristine river surrounded by redwoods in the north northern sections of California. Some of the most racist places I've ever been have been border towns of reservations of Native Americans in the United States, and the way Sammy looks at it is that you know the residents of those border towns. Were, are basically the descendants of people who, a 200 years ago, uh, two hundred years ago, committed an unthinkable act. You know, either murdering with their hands or with their rifles the the original inhabitants of that land, or accepting the land from, in these cases, the U.S. military who wiped out or slaughtered natives. You know, one, two, five years before. And so, Sammy says. And again, he's on a Native American reservation. He says that, you know, a lot of those kids carry an unconscious burden. They carry an unconscious guilt for what their ancestors might've done. Knowing that their ancestors might've done so with with semi-plausible intentions, the intentions of, of, of establishing the safety and security of their family for generations to come. But nonetheless, there was an act of violence that had two sides. It had the the Native American side. Sammy's ancestors were, were affected by that. But Sammy, as a Native American, says that he's trying to heal. He understands the trauma that was created and how he was the recipient of one side of that trauma. But the descendants of the settlers don't yet realize where their guilt or, in some cases, their hate might come from and they're carrying the burden of their ancestors in an unfair way. Sammy says that people need to have conversations. They need to understand that they're forever, right now, psychologically, they're forever linked by that same act of violence. It's the obverse and reverse of the same coin. It's only by recognizing that and shedding that, you know, essentially coming to terms with it and putting it in the past in a conscious way, which would create systems of equity, of balance, and understanding that there needs to be some sort of reparations, whether it's just psychological, whether it's developing friendships, but it's an understanding that there's a lot of hate. And there's a lot of hate created by our ancestors. And both people on both sides are sharing an unfair burden.
0: That's an incredible amount of understanding for him to take that position.
1: I was, when he said that, I was blown away. Yeah,
0: gosh. You mentioned then the American government was giving out land. Is that part of the Homestead Act?
1: Yeah, so, you know, American settlers were given guarantees of, in some cases, 40, in some cases, 160 acres. In some cases, to basically put Americans where natives were, an unlimited amount of water So a lot of American water policy was based on putting, in this case, Caucasian Americans where Native Americans were and saying that I know that land is pretty unfarmable here, but you've got this massive river and we'll make sure that you have access to this river for hundreds of years to come. Um, And there have been a lot of social problems from that and some environmental problems from that as well.
0: Hey friends, me again. Quick note to let you know, I have a brand new, completely complimentary two-week plant-based meal plan on my website. Inside contains delicious breakfast, lunch, dinner, and snack recipes, along with a complete breakdown of the nutritional information for each. Whether you're looking to add one plant-based meal to your weekly regime, or go full plant, I'm sure you will find this resource helpful. You can get your copy today at plantproof.com forward slash meal plan. That's plantproof.com forward slash meal plan. Okay, let's get back into it. With your understanding of the history and and what took place a couple hundred years ago when settlers did arrive and, and displaced Native Americans from their land, do you think that it could have been a different story? Do you think that you know understanding the the mindsets of both parties that there could have been a a more harmonious you know way for these two different types of people to live on the land together?
1: I, I would have hoped so. But, you know, there, there was a lot that led up to the European colonization of the Western Hemisphere, and a lot of it started with the church. You know, some of the earliest examples of the church condoning violence were around the Crusades, where, you know, European investors going to basically pillage, you know, needed permission from the church to be able to kill brown Christians. And that sort of doctrine became something called the doctrine of discovery, where it became completely permissible for Christians to kill non-Christians and for them for that to be sanctioned by the church. So when Western European capitalists came to North America, they were coming so with the force of this decree, this kind of papal decree behind them, where they saw Natives from the outset as heathens, and it gave them complete moral permission in their minds to separate Natives from wealth by any means necessary. Now, that didn't need to continue from when the United States was formed as a non-denominational country, but that attitude, that permissibility was basically carried on through American policy we're at a stage now where most kids in the U.S. don't even know that Native Americans still exist. You know, they've never met any. They don't have friends that are any. You know, the stories they're told are around these myths of, you know, natives feeding early English settlers. We have a holiday here called Thanksgiving. It's around, you know, the the myth of this Young Native princess called Pocahontas. Is that
0: an offensive holiday? Do the Native American people feel a certain way about Thanksgiving?
1: Well, I I, I can't speak for uh, all of them. I mean, in the sense that, like, Native Americans are, you know, they they drive Ford pickups, and in America, Thanksgiving is a is a is a family holiday first and foremost. But yes, that myth is deeply offensive to everyone that that I know in Indian country.
0: So, if we were to walk outside right now in Soho and just Talk to the first person we, we came across, how much of this history do you think that they would be aware of?
1: Pretty much zero. I mean, basically, we're taught in schools here that Native Americans were allies or the saviors of the very first English, the pilgrims, that came to what's now Massachusetts and that they helped them, you know, survive the first couple of winters And that then the majority of Native Americans were wiped out due to pandemic. The idea that there was a conscious and continuing war, a genocide against them, is definitely not taught in schools here.
0: That war, like how long did that go for?
1: So from the 1600s until the early 1800s, a lot of the natives on the East Coast were killed or forced to move around the center of what's now the United States. And when they were forced to move, there were no trains back then, so they were forced to walk. You have people 50, 60, 70 years old that would die before getting to those new homelands.
0: So if the history books have, I guess, erased this, really, that's what you're saying, uh, where is the information for someone to to find? Is it through certain books that this knowledge is being passed down? Is it just through the the families of Native Americans?
1: I mean, there, there are books like The Heartbeat of Wounded Knee by a man named David Truer, but the history is too insidious for most people to study. You know, we talk about the, the right to own guns in the United States. And, you know, we, we tend to want to believe that it was a, a protection against any sort of of tyrannical government. In fact, there were two reasons why gun ownership was necessary at the beginning of the the United States. Number one, to police African-American slaves and to capture them when they've escaped. But number two, it's because American farming was inherently a violent act. You basically had to go out and steal existing Native farms and forcibly protect those farms from Natives trying to come back and take them. And so farmers stashed guns throughout their fields so that when the natives that were original inhabitants of that land organized war parties to take back their land with bows and arrows and rudimentary weapons, you could shoot them. And so there's a lot of that early American history that requires too much self-awareness. Also the idea that the majority, if not the entirety of American wealth was based on both African-American labor and Native American land, and that those populations still exist and they still suffer, it brings up the question of equity, of reparations, of financially compensating people for being dispossessed either of their bodies or of their land so that we might have the United States we live in now. It's too complicated for people to think about losing their power and their wealth.
0: It would seem, critical vital to proper reparation going forward from here to have the history books reflecting what happened because you know it it seems like a big first step here is awareness
1: i mean a lot of this isn't in the distant past i mean if you're looking at, at western tribes like those in the movie in california and arizona their grandparents the people in the in the, in the movie their grandparents were alive at times when there was memory of freedom. So grandparents would have been alive in the in, in you know in the been born in the 1910s, 1920s, and they would have heard stories from their grandparents of the way life was before the US Army came in. So imagine that you're living in a really unfortunate set of circumstances and you know that someone a hundred miles away is living on land that should be yours and and generating wealth on land that was yours for hundreds hundreds if not thousands of years, and that their ancestors killed your grandparents to take that land, it would be really, really hard to forget about that and to not want some sort of justice. And that's the fundamental basis of a lot of this is what is justice? If a wrong was done, what do we need to do to right it?
0: In terms of the ongoing conversation about reparation and valuing Native American people, would I be right in assuming this is a tribe by tribe thing as opposed to just one, one uh, change that's going to affect the entire Native American population?
1: I mean, with a little bit of, of humility as a total outsider, I, I could say that, you know, 10, 15 years ago, a lot of tribes were, active, were advocating for positions just as individual tribes. But in the last five or 10 years, many of the tribes have begun working together. And there's a movement now in the United States called Land Back, which is essentially like, give us our land back.
0: I've seen that, yeah, on social media.
1: Yeah, I mean, there's so many cases where the U.S. government has destroyed river systems by building massive dams, by giving water away to farmers in areas that shouldn't have that kind of access. And the rest of society is suffering. And so a lot of native groups are like, if you give us that land back, it's going to be better for everybody.
0: Is that about giving public land back or is it about uh, land that is currently owned by non-natives?
1: I I think it's, 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 it's layered. It's like a lot of tribes have had their own borders you know, decimated. And so it's getting access back to their traditional sites for, for prayer, for their own family history. Um, but it's also getting access to public land and stewarding it in a way that, you know, would, would prevent forest fires. But lastly, it's massive river systems and other things that affect millions of Americans that Native Americans wanna have a say in, in terms of policy.
0: Let's talk a little more about the film itself. This is your third film that you've directed, Ryan.
1: Yeah, I made Food Chains and then an Indigenous running film called 3100 Run and Become.
0: With Gather, walk me through sort of the conception. How did you first, I guess, gain the trust uh, of the people that were involved? And what was it that really inspired you to want to turn this into a film?
1: So the, the very first documentary ever made was called Nanook of the North. And it was by an Anglo-American filmmaker named Robert Flaherty. And it was a film about an Inuit man. And from, from all depictions, that film was made with a lot of community help. But it, it's indisputable that it created an industry where those of us who could afford a plane ticket or a bus ticket and a camera flew around the world to tell stories of other people. And so, you know, indigenous communities have learned a lot of their, quote, history from films made by non-natives. That's a long way of saying I would have never made this film on my own. I have a bunch of friends who work for a native nonprofit called the First Nations Development Institute. They've been working, they're native, and they've been working in Indian country for decades. It was an idea that came from them. They were very much the kind of like guides of it. And it was the trust that they had in these communities that enabled us to make it.
0: Was there anything that surprised you after you released the film in terms of how what moved people the most?
1: So we made this film, which is essentially the journey of an Apache chef named Nephi Craig trying to build a completely indigenous themed restaurant on one of the most economically affected and, and health disparity rich parts of Indian country, the White Mountain Apache Reservation. We also, in that story, we follow a young Yurok uh, man living on a river and, and and fishing for salmon, a young scientist studying the medicinal effects of buffalo, and this, you know, this uh, Apache uh, forager, Twila Casador. We essentially created this movie just for native communities. And it was, it's, there's a lot of stuff that we didn't explain. We didn't explain genocide and capitalism and, you know, the colonization of the food system, because for Native Americans, it's a reality. Everybody knows about that stuff. We were shocked though, that non-natives took to the film. And, you know, it was one of the top ranking films on Amazon and iTunes last fall. And I think it's because a lot of young people and people interested in the food system understand that much of the story or the history of food is hidden. That the things that we're trying to solve right now weren't created in the last 10 or 20 years. They were created 300, 400, 500 years ago.
0: Being a a former scientist yourself, how do you sort of reconcile, I guess, the wisdom from indigenous practices? Do you feel that there needs to be some form of like a, a blend of that and along with modern day science in order to sort of work out objectively where we're going?
1: It's an interesting question. You know, from a native perspective, there is something that natives refer to as native science. And that's developed not in a laboratory, but I mean, we'd call that ecology now, but it's based on spending decades in a specific environment or a specific biome and learning everything you possibly can and that's deeply scientific. There's lots of experimentation. There's, it's data-driven. And so I think that's where I would push Western science rather than it just being theoretical, particularly challenging the problems that we have right now. It takes people committing themselves to specific problems in specific locations for decades and not just flitting around policy circles and giving TED Talks and meeting heads of state.
0: Yeah, it's an interesting one. To think about because it really it comes back to how well you understand those practices. Though, from my understanding, if you look at regenerative agriculture, you see a lot of the stuff on YouTube, for example, and the claims around carbon sequestration. But studies that have looked to reproduce that, and these aren't these aren't indigenous claims. These are claims made by uh, white people, you know, that have been sort of enthusiastic about modern day regenerative agriculture. The studies that have looked at it have found that they are overall still net carbon emitting practices. So it does, I I kind of feel a bit conflicted because I see the incredible value of regenerative practices, but I, I still feel like there needs to be some form of way of measuring it so we don't just have people going out and making huge claims.
1: I mean, it's like the nutritional friend of yours, the genius Dr. Gar- Dr. Gardner, you know, it's like when he started really analyzing the role of behavior, right, in, in nutrition, you know, it opened up the field significantly. And I think that's one thing that, again, is, is missing from a lot of conversations is the fact that there's actually people involved. And it's, this is not theoretical. This is not just based on computation, It's like, what are people actually going to do? And what do people actually need within a food system?
0: You're a beautiful human. Thank you so much for doing this. Uh, If folks listening, other than going out and watching Gather and supporting the documentary and sharing it with friends and family, if they want to support Native Americans, what are some of the, the best ways of doing so?
1: We have a wonderful tool called Google. Most of us, if you're not indigenous, you're living on indigenous land. Google who those first people were, and chances are some of the, 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 those tribes will still be within a hundred mile radius of where you're living. Learn about their policy recommendations. They all have websites, and you'll likely see that a lot of things that they're advocating for, you might not realize will change your life for the better. And once you realize what their positions are for your own homeland, you'll realize that you need to become an ally. So a lot of it is understanding whose land you're on and that those people still exist and that they can use your allyship and your friendship a lot more than you could think.
0: Beautiful. Thank you so much.
1: I had a great time, Simon. Thank you very much. Thank you very much.
0: There we go. I hope you found that interesting, thought-provoking, and instructive. For those of you that haven't yet seen Gather, you can visit www. Dot, gather dot film for details. And I've put that link along with Sanjay's socials into the show notes. And on the topic of socials, if we are not already connected, you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at plant underscore proof. It's always great to connect with all who tune in each week. I love reading messages from people all across the world who are finding the show interesting And of value, it keeps me inspired to continue having these conversations. Last one before I let you go, I am often asked what supplements I take. So I finally got around and created an in-depth supplement guide, totally free, that you can download along with a bunch of other free guides at plantproof.com. That's plantproof.com. It contains information about daily supplements, both everyday wellness supplements, along with performance supplements. The daily wellness supplement I personally take is a multi-nutrient called Essential Eight by NutriKind. This is a product that I formulated for NutriKind alongside their team that specifically contains the eight key nutrients that plant-based eaters often fall a little short in. Omega-3s from algae, B12, vitamin D3 from mushroom, iodine from seaweed, calcium, zinc, selenium, and iron. The right forms in the right doses to complement your plant-rich diet. To find out more or subscribe to a monthly delivery, head to NutriKind.com. That's N-U-T-R-I-K-Y-N-D.com. And use the code PlantProof for 15% off your purchase. So, in summary, grab a copy of the supplement guide at plantproof.com. And if you are looking for a daily multi to cover your bases, head to NutriKind.com and use the code PlantProof for 15% off. All links are in the show notes. Well, there we go. Time to land this plane. Thank you so much for hanging out with me all the way to the end here and for your ongoing interest in evidence-based nutrition. I appreciate you and look forward to doing it all again in a few days' time. Until then, remember, more plants, my friends, more plants.